Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Oz Business. We kick off the afternoon with the call. 60 minutes, 10 stocks that you've suggested. I put it to uh, our two experts for their analysis and uh, always promises to be a fun 60 minutes when we have these two blokes on board. Andrew Willard from uh, DP Wealth Advisory in Toowoomba, How are our favourite Queenslander, and Henry Jennings from uh, Marcus Today join us now. Uh, how are you, gents? <laughs> Good afternoon to you. Great to be here with you on the 7th of October for The Call. Just sitting in for David Koss today. Ten stocks picked by you, two expert guests all over the space of an hour. I'm Nadine Blaney. It is good to have with us, well, Julia Lee from Berman Invest, Luke Winchester from Meriwether Capital. Hey guys, good afternoon. It's already Thursday, hard to believe, in a new month, so plenty to look forward to. Um, Julia, how are you feeling as we sit here on the 7th of October in terms of the equity index? Feeling pretty good. Um, We've had quite a correction here um, from over 7,600 points, so a correction of around about 7.4%. So I guess the key is whether we've seen the bottom here or whether we see uh, more losses. Now, traditionally, October is a pretty good month. In fact, the third best performing month of the year, despite some of the crashes having occurred in October. So despite the volatility that we've started off the month with, expecting to end the month off with a bang. Well, that sounds good. Luke, you feeling pretty good? I mean, are there plenty of opportunity in that sort of micro cap part of the market that you're looking for right now in these types of sell-offs? Oh, for sure, Nadine. I mean, micro caps, um, you know, uh, from a liquidity point of view, just get swept up in in, mar- in wider market volatility. So for sure, yeah, see some really interesting opportunities. And, um, you know, from even from a wider market point of view, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm quite positive as well, like Julia. Um, you know, there's a lot of reasons to be negative. There always are. A week ago, it was Evergrande. This week, it's, um, you know, coal and oil prices and, and energy crisis around the world. Um, I just I, I hesitate to panic too much when, um, you know, these issues are so visible. Like we, we know Evergrande's a problem. We know, you know, the short-term supply of energy is a problem. Um, it, it's those black swan things that, that really disrupt the market like COVID last year. So I think that, you know, you get this volatility, of course, and, and our valuations sort of play into that a bit. But, um, you know, looking forward, I, I, I am quite positive on the overall market. Yeah, well, so that's the short-term conversation. Let's put that behind us because we're focused on the future in our future fund series. It's replaced stock of the day for now. Let's start with you, Luke. So these are companies, something, I know you've got kids, so that you could buy mm. now that you think in years to come might help pay for those XE uh, uni fees, no doubt, that are, that are on tap. 
Yeah, look, I, I picked Nintendo and, and I actually came at this in, in two different ways. One is obviously you want an investment that's around in 20 years. Um, and, and, you know, this is a business that is 100 years old. So I, I dare say it will be around in another 20. Um, from, from a stock point of view, I, I like the business. We all know Nintendo. It's, um, you know, maybe other than Disney got some of the best intellectual property in the world, um, looking for new ways to monetize that in mobile gaming and things like that. So I, I really like it from that point of view. But the other angle I came across is, is you know, that proverb of, of give a man a fish, you feed him for a day, teach a man to fish, you feed him for a life. I've butchered that through all the philosophers out there, but, um, you know, bear with me. Of, of you know, trying to pick something that the kids would also be interested in, you know, in those maybe 10 to, to 14, 15 ages, you can sort of explain to them, um, you know, why you've invested in that stock. They can sort of see the appeal of something that they might be attracted to. I, I know certainly my kids would be, and even, even me, myself, Nadine, I am a gamer still, I must confess. So um, I picked Nintendo. I think it's a good business, um, obviously, on the Tokyo Exchange. There's also an American... Um, um, ADR listing as well, so it's 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 um e pretty easy to be accessed by um, even retail investors. Yeah, right. Well, that's a good take on this uh, this stock series. Julia, how about you? What what would you think would be a very quality long term holding that will appreciate obviously in price and value? Well, I know this one's not going to go down well with the punters, um, but I think when you're looking at the long term, it's less about just picking one stock and more about letting time do the work for you. And when you're investing for someone young and you've got such a long time frame ahead of you, the, the power of compounding is the key. So you want, I think, a basket of stocks that are just going to increase over time. I mean, to give you an idea, you know, if you invest $10,000 now, you manage to get 8% a year steadily. In 10 years time, that's over $20,000. But in 20 years time, that's around $50,000. And in 50 years time, well, that's more than $500,000. So you can see that compounding impact is really the power of investing. So it's less, I think, to do with choosing the right one stock and more to do with choosing a portfolio of stocks or maybe even an index approach because it is about those stocks being around for the long term. I call the holy trinity on the Aussie share market, BHP, Billiton, <laughs> uh, Macquarie, as well as CSL. Um, and look, there are different drivers there. And what you want with that diversification is stocks that don't always move together. So CSL is defensive, playing into that theme of the aging population in the healthcare space. BHP is all about global growth. And, you know, Macquarie sort of uh, walks to its own beat most of the time. So looking at a, a diversified approach and really using compounding because, you know, when you have time, it's compounding that does the work for you. Julia, you're bending the rules, I think, but I'll let you get away with it. The Holy Trinity from Julia Lee. And I'm sure your kids already know the lessons around the power of compounding, Julia, if I know you at all. All right. Thanks, guys. Like thanks. I've so just learned about uh, supply chain disruption. <laughs> They've done their Santa letters because uh, they know that Santa needs parts from all over the world and the uh, shipping rates have gone up and are a bit slow at the moment. So they've put their list in as of yesterday. <laughs> That's awesome. I feel like your kids are one of the few that will suffer once they go back to, uh, to in-class learning, Julia. All right, let's move on from that. Let's get to the list of companies that have been picked by you, our viewers. Thank you for doing so. If you'd like to, to send one in yourself, the call at ausbiz.com.au. But this one is for Dan. It is Silk Laser Australia. Julia, I'll start with you. I mean, it, first of all, it, it beat expectations in the past reporting season, but also we're all being let out of jail, so to speak, here in New South <laughs> Wales on Monday. So you've got to think that's going to be good for business. 
Yeah, I mean, you think about how desperate most of us are to have a haircut. I've cut my own hair three times and um, <laughs> hubby's hair well about done. three times as well. But most people, you know, I'm still pretty desperate to go to the hairdressers and just get back to normal. And when you have a look at Silk, it's all about mostly laser hair removal, but also injectables as well. And I'd imagine there's a bit of pent-up demand. I guess on the negative side, they haven't been too impacted by COVID. This is a company that started in South Australia. So they're really exposed to South Australia, Queensland, areas that haven't been impacted too much by the lockdowns. But having said that, when you're looking at the retail space, the magic combination is seeing an increase in sales together with an increase in stores, and that sees an increase in valuations. So there's really three ways in my mind that Silk can grow. One, an increase in same-store sales. Two, an increase in the network or the number of clinics they have. And number three, by acquisition, because just by rolling in businesses that aren't listed into a listed business, you see the valuation increase. And that's really what Silk is concentrating on. They recently made an acquisition, which means they've got about 116 stores, but they are aiming to get to over 150 stores. So as long as they can keep that uh, same store growth, which has been growing very strongly. Um, and look, I think the thing with this company is, is all about the cross-selling. You think about laser hair removal and the average someone spends there is about $120. But then when you look at injectables, the average spend is over $400. So you really want to move them from, you know, getting their hair removed into getting Botox and um, I guess fixing their face up and just capitalizing on that extra spend there. So is it a buy, hold or a sell? Oh, it's a buy. I think it's, it is a buy. I think it's looking good and it's a growth story. They've got that magic combination yeah. of same store sales growth, um, more stores opening up, and then also acquisitions. There you go. The holy trinity to the magic combo. I like where you're going <laughs> with this, Julia. Luke, how about you? Silk, laser. Yeah, Julia covered it really well. Um, look, they did 52% like-for-like sales last year. So I, I sort of agree with Julia. I wonder how COVID impacted they actually were and, and, and how much pent-up demand there is. Um, their FY22 update, they, they um, called for a little bit of growth on top of that, you know, despite cycling the big number. I think it was about 6% um, when you, you factor in some stores that were closed. But um yeah, look, I, I really touched on everything that, that I sort of saw as well when I looked at the business. They're, they're, they're really driving sort of through all those um, the, those levers that they have through obviously top line margins, and you're doing it through um, increasing stores as well. Um, big acquisition of Australian skin clinics, and, and to me that was the not a red flag, but definitely something to watch moving forward. Um, it, it almost doubles their store count. Um, it wasn't a cheap acquisition either. So as Julia mentioned, when you can do these little bolt-on acquisitions, you can get some real good accretion. Um, you know, this uh, skin trades on, um, sorry, um, silk trades on about 15 times EBITDA. So if you can pick up very small, you know, maybe one or two stores for four or five times EBITDA, you get a really good um, accretion there. But they acquired Australian skin clinics on about 10 times EBITDA just because of the size of that business, obviously. So um, you don't quite get that, but obviously what you get is, is some real scale and the ability for management, I suppose. Um, they've called out some synergies they can drive from that acquisition. Um, like I said, the FY22 update looked pretty good. Um, the mature store metrics look really strong as well. 90% EBITDA margins, 55% return on invested capital. And it doesn't take them too long to, to reach a mature level, only about three years, which is pretty good for, for these sorts of businesses. Um, look, I, I hesitate to have a buy as well. Um, you know, I, I don't currently own it, but, but if, um, if I did, I would be watching that acquisition just over the next maybe six to 12 months. Um, you know, really um, read the management commentary or if you have the ability on a conference call, ask the question about how that integration is proceeding. Um, the other thing I'd flag as well 
is Australian Skin Clinics actually uses a franchisee model compared to Silk, which uses a bit of a blend between corporate owned franchisees. So it does shift their business model a little bit. Um, so another thing for management to sort of stay on top of. But overall, I really liked it. Is that that was that has it? Is that a hold or is that a buy? No, I, I think you could buy it today on, on 15 times EBITDA and, and um, you know, bringing in this big acquisition, you should see some good earnings growth over good. the next few years. Got it. That's a buy. That is going in the portfolio. I don't think it's in the fantasy portfolio, which we'll get to shortly. Okay, let's go to the next company on our list. This one is for Matt. I might start with you on this one, Luke, just to change it up. Integrated Research. Yeah, Matt writes, I'm sure it was considered to be a safe stock, but it has come off quite a bit over the past year. So Fosi's wondering what's going on. Yeah, Matt's right. It was considered to be safe in the sense of um, these guys do software that does sort of performance monitoring and um, analytics for mission critical business processes and, and real blue chip customers, primarily banks, MasterCard, Visa, um, also some sort of collaboration um, sort of software as well. But, uh, you know, the, the perception within the market was um, these guys have very negligible churn and historically that's sort of been 97, 98% retention rates. So most of your churn is probably just customers being acquired or, or potentially going out of business. And so um, Matt was spot on that, that that was the perception in the market, very safe, very steady. Um, COVID sort of really, um, you know, perhaps maybe shattered that investment thesis. So so churn really fell. Um, and, and particularly as well, the business model these guys use, they were they were using traditional software licensing rather than the, the SaaS that you now see through, through so many software businesses. Um, so you combine those two things together of a business trying to transition to that SaaS revenue while going through COVID and some of those large customers wind back spend on a product that you previously thought was mission critical and, and you know, that they, they wouldn't wind back um, that sort of um, software spend. It's led to the market pretty savagely selling down these stocks. You, you guys have the charts up there now, obviously. Um, it looks cheap on a on a pre-COVID earnings. So if you've got a view that this business can recover and, and the second half 21, I will, I will call out, you did start to see that. It was about um, you know, 30% revenue growth on the first half 21. So maybe that's the start of this turnaround if you can get back to that pre-COVID earnings. Um, I have them on about 11 times pre-COVID earnings, which is, is you know, for a software business is, is, is insanely cheap. Um, I just, I, I couldn't bring myself to buy it today though, just until I saw more evidence of that turnaround really happening mm-hmm. and those big blue chip customers coming back with that spend. Um, you often find that with these businesses, when they do wind back that spend, they quickly realised that maybe they didn't have to do it in the first place, or, or wasn't as mission critical as what people thought, um, and, and you know they may not be coming back as, as the market. Um, well, obviously, the market's pricing it as if they won't, but as, as management maybe you would expect them to. So, if I owned it, I would probably keep holding it. Now you've you've, you've written it down for such a long way, and it looks really cheap on pre-COVID, but I couldn't buy it until I saw more evidence of that turnaround. Julia, could you stomach an integrated research buy when you see the price action of the past year? I mean, I like what it does. When you look at performance management software, you know, for large organizations, it's really hard to sort of keep your finger on the pulse and what's happening. And this monitors things like, you know, when someone last used a software, um, hardware limits as well and thresholds, as well as having a look at CPU loads. So it is an important part of software, especially for larger organizations. The problem here is that we have seen revenue falling really sharply and whether that's due to COVID-19 or whether 
whether that's because customers are finding other solutions. I think that's yet a question to be answered. If we have a look at their net profit after tax, the last result, it was down 67%. So that's a huge amount. Now, they've said that this is mostly due to customers deferring their decisions around this. But my question is whether that's a deferring of a decision or whether they're going with some other solution. So I, I like Luke, want a bit more clarity in terms of what's happening under the surface and whether those deferred customers actually do end up coming back or whether they are lost customers. So a no from me. And no, so you would be avoiding that one. If you already held it though, say Matt, who sent in the question, uh, you know, because he talks about the context of the year, he's already holding it. Would you sell now? I don't think you'd sell now, but you'd be praying pretty hard given uh, the fall that you've seen yeah. in the price. And I think that this is one where, you know, it, it's okay to sell, but you have to sell early when you've ridden it down as fast as it has. I guess, um, you know, you don't have as much to lose. And it also depends on your positioning sizing yeah. as well, as long as it's not the biggest position in your portfolio. Yeah, and that's that's a good reminder for me to remind our viewers that this is not for your specific circumstances. So uh, we're not taking into consideration any of your personal financial uh, situation. So if you're making decisions and you need to do that independently of this with advice, this is information only. Let's get to CBA from Sandy. Here's a bit of context. Owned the big four bank stocks for quite a while. Part of core holding, plan on holding them. Although obviously she's questioning you know, the price at the moment and also the fact that we've got all these new fintech players coming back in, you know, Afterpay or as well as the neobanks. So uh, Sandy's saying, would you be holding the bank stocks like CBA for the long term? You know, we know, Julia, what these prices have done. Uh, a lot of uh, a lot of people are wondering if they're just a little bit too X-y right now. It's time to take a bit of profit out of these big four banks. Yeah, I guess if you have a look at the banks, at the heart of it, they're a leverage play on the Australian economy. So we're still in uh, recovery mode and we will be into 2022, which should bode well for the banks. And don't forget, we're in a very low interest environment. Um, you know, just in New Zealand, we saw interest rates rising from 0.25% to 0.5%. And that rising interest rate environment is a positive for the banks. Having said that, you know, we always lump the big four banks into one basket, and that's because they are driven primarily by the same things, um, mortgage lending, things like business lending as well. And I guess if you want to differentiate the big four banks, Commonwealth Bank has the biggest exposure to retail customers and a mortgage lending book. So if we do see, I guess, a downturn or an easing off in the property market, the housing market, Commonwealth Bank is the most exposed. On the other side, if you're looking at an increase in business lending, um, NAB has the most exposure to the business lending part of, of the, the, the business my preference at the moment is Bank of Queensland. Look, I think you've seen a lot more property activity in Queensland um, than you have in the other states and a lot more migration into that area, which Bank of Queensland has a strong franchise in. And they're coming up with their results in October. So there's a potential catalyst for the share price as well. At this point in time, I'd probably be selling out of Commonwealth Bank into some of the other banks. And that's only because um, when you're looking at the banks, usually you're looking for income and Commonwealth Bank has already paid its dividend, whereas the other banks are yet to pay another dividend. So it's really just about valuation and dividend harvesting for me at this point. So no, I wouldn't buy Commonwealth Bank here. If anything, I'd be selling it and cycling it into some of the other banks. That's a sell for CBA. What about you, Luke? I mean, so many Australians have these banks as their core holdings. I was just reading a note from Goldman Sachs this morning. 
in relation to the macroprudential tightening that came from APRA. Yes, it's softly, softly. And uh, that's exactly why uh, Goldman Sachs still says that it's got a buy on NAB, ANZ, Westpac, and Bank of Queensland. CBA not mentioned in there. What's your view specifically on CBA? Um, it, it's hard for me to come with anything other than a sell, Nadine. Um, it, it's historically expensive, um, you know, even compared to itself on, on 18 times earnings. It used to be that when the banks got the 15 times earnings, that was, you know, that was expensive and you, you took profits. Now it's 18. But um, compare it to um, international peers, it's incredibly expensive. Price to book, it's incredibly expensive. And, and I'd go a step further than Julia when she made her point about their leverage play on the Australian economy. They're essentially just a leverage play on Australian housing now. Um, you know, the banks, you've stripped away wealth management you've stripped away insurance um, you know almost any other um, income generating arm has been stripped away till it's just a, a mortgage lending book um, Julia mentions NAB does some some you know good business lending but the other majors um, you know very very little it's it's essentially all just um, retail banking and mortgages um, I was going to mention obviously you just touched on it then um, APRA's decision um, earlier in the week to, to, to rise that, um, that, that that limit to three percent. I think you're right. It's softly, softly to start with. But but bear in mind that that um, decision was partly driven by by Matt Common, the, the CEO of the CBA, coming out I think a couple of weeks ago and, and sort of urging APRA to act. So um, whether CBA would have taken um, some, some directives upon themselves to change limits, I'm not sure. But obviously APRA has done that work for them now. Whether they, they go further remains to be seen. But it's hard to be too bullish, I guess, on Australian housing, considering that it is so heavily driven by credit. And, and, and now you've seen the first sign of that, that sort of spigot just tightening a little bit. Um, and, and yeah, you know, Julia sort of said you could pivot to other to other options. Um, I one that I would throw up in, in my sort of sort of micro mid cap space is Resimac. If you wanted that sort of mortgage lending exposure, I think it trades much cheaper than the banks and a, and a solid dividend yield as well. But um, I'd really struggle to own CBA to be honest. Resimac is a bonus buy coming from Luke Winchester. I noted in the Goldman Sachs note on the APRA uh, rejig that it says that Pepper Money is also one of those lenders that has explicitly been excluded from the tighter regulations. Do you follow Pepper at all, Luke? I don't follow Pepper. Okay. And sorry, I, I did I did mean to say um, to, to Sandy's point about the fintech people coming up. I don't actually view them as massive negatives for the banks. Okay. Bear in mind that most of the fintechs that have come up are targeting customers the banks don't really want anyway. So the banks sort of win, uh, win in a sense because they were never going to win those customers. Um, and they actually provide the warehouse facilities to the to most of the fintechs. So, you know, they're, they're collecting um, interest on, on the warehouse facilities. So um, maybe someone like an afterpay as you, as you move away from credit, obviously. But um, for a lot of the other sort of fintech lenders, the, the banks are probably benefits of, of them in, in the longer term. Got it. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Let's get on to number four on our list. It is Appen, former tech darling for Daryl. He points out that it's pretty much at a three and a half year low. It peaked at $40. Um, he's wondering if, if the performance is contrary to the financials being displayed by the company. Uh, I'll start with you, Luke, uh, because this company has been in a downgrade cycle. Um, it, it, it's not really had any good news coming around it. So what, what do you do in terms of yeah, it's it's value now compared to what's on the books. You're right, Nadine. It's been in a downgrade cycle, and, and and based on the half year result not long ago, it potentially still is in that downgrade cycle. They already called that the full year result will come in at the lower end of the guidance range they've already given, and you know with some some changes to the macro or or maybe a bit more deterioration in the business performance, there's a chance they they have to downgrade again. Um, look. To go back 
to the business of, of, of Appen, you said before it was a tech darling. I think it was always a bit of a misunderstanding with Appen in the sense this is more akin to a mining services business to a miner rather than, you know, like a tech services business to the major techs. Um, at its core, Appen is, is, is a labor hire business, essentially. They run a very big pool of people who, um, you know, will perform tasks for them, annotation and, and um, sort of recognition tasks. That feeds into data sets, which are then provided to, to major tech um, giants and, and some other customers. And they use that to feed into their AI um, algorithms. So uh, it's actually a very low tech solution, Appen. And I mm -hmm. think that was sort of um, overlooked by the market for a long time. But you see that in their EBITDA margins. They only do about 14% EBITDA margins. You know, most software does sort of 40 or 50%, sometimes higher for the real mature guys. Um, so I think a big a big part of that multiple contraction has been the, the market probably understanding that a bit more. Um, and, and the business, no doubt, has seen some real competitive pressures come into it, whether that's through um, more direct competition, um, you know, winning winning work off Appen, or whether it's the, the, the traditional customers being your, your Googles, Facebooks, Apples, mm -hmm. Microsofts, um, sort of bringing some of that work they previously outsourced to Appen in-house. And ultimately, I think Appen is also a victim of their own success because um, Facebook and, and I think Tesla have, have sort of pointed out they've developed AI algorithms that do some of that initial work that, that Appen sort of does in that um, initial sort of, um, you know, image recognition or, or, or annotation sort of um, software. So you almost have the AI now, um, you mm -hmm. know, dominating the space where previously that data fed into them. Look, it looks cheap. 12 and a half times EBITDA, but but to be honest, um, Daryl, you know, I, I think they're priming the market for another guidance miss. Um, so I'd struggle to I'd, I'd struggle to, to, to buy it. Um, if I owned it, I'd probably hold it just on that valuation. But um, you know, it could still be another rough few months for Appen. And like IRR, I just need to see more before I could put the toe back in. Yeah, Julia, what do you think? I mean, is there any reason to be buying Appen? now when you know that competition is in the space. I mean, it doesn't even really disclose some of its biggest customers, but we do know some of its biggest customers are looking to do some of this work themselves. I mean, it was a pretty ugly chart. It is a very ugly chart. If you were buying Appen at this stage, it would be on the back of a punt. So yeah. very speculative. And it is, I guess, uh, the valuation of the company, which is very low compared to what the company is saying. So on the positive side, the order book looks pretty good here and the pipeline. On the flip side, if you have a look at the share price chart, obviously the market doesn't believe what the company is saying or what management is saying. And this is a company that is extremely labor intensive. Um, and that's why you've got the, the lower margins as well. One thing you can do if you are interested in this company is uh, track the job ads from Appen because it is very labor intensive. They hire people from all around the globe to be able to label that data. And really data annotation is just labeling data for AI, artificial intelligence. And they do that. The problem here is that the big, the their five, uh, five clients make up more than 80% of revenue. So in that way, it reminds me a lot of push pay where you've got the mega churches making up so much of the revenue. And the problem is that, you know, if you're not going to be getting more work from your top five clients, which make up so much of revenue, you're really going down to smaller and smaller companies. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that um, when you're acquiring smaller lots of business, it becomes a lot more expensive to do than compared to, you know, winning a Facebook contract or a Google contract um, where there's a lower cost in terms of acquisition. So uh, for me, 
the question for in terms of Appen is twofold. One, short term versus long term. Short term, whether it is too oversold, and we do see you know management doing what they say they will. But then in the long term, there's a question of whether we're seeing a structural change in terms of how data is um, annotated, and we are seeing you know Facebook has already come out to say it's got its own algorithms to do some some of that data labeling. So it's a question of you know, how quickly that technology really catches up to, um, I guess, what humans are doing at the moment and also how accurate because it is notoriously difficult to do, which is why it's so labor intensive at the moment. But I suspect we're seeing, you know, the start of a bit of a structural shift from less mm -hmm. human intervention in terms of data annotation. Um, and I guess um, Appen probably have having to target smaller companies, which is, you know, also ripe for uh, this type of business to win business, but it's just going to cost more to do. So you would not be buying, you'd be avoiding right now. Yeah, I mean, in the long term, it's a no until yeah. I saw um, better signs. But um, in the short term, I think it's just a bit of a punt if you're inclined yeah. that way. Yeah, look, and you've got a question. Um, management, I think, not seeing these structural shifts coming when that's the area that they're operating in as well. But that's my editorializing for now. It's uh, not based on anything other than observation. Anyhow, an opinion. Um, let's get to the fifth company on the list. And that is a company that, again, I wasn't familiar with, but I've looked it up and it's Causal. C-O-S is the ticker code. This is for Frank. It listed less than two years ago. He's saying that uh, it's EBIT and NPAT are all up double digits. Market cap is under $100 million. Liquidity very low. But he says, and this is the context, for a small position, does it stack up? I mean, it's won some contracts, uh, partnering with IBM and the Department of Defense. It's enterprise software, right, Luke? Do you know the company? Um, a little bit, Nadine. I actually stumbled across this in the last reporting season and, and put it on my watch list. Um, so it was interesting. It came up today and, and had another look. Um, it, it, it deals in enterprise software, but um, sorry, the viewer, Frank. Um, the, the thing to keep in mind, Frank, is that these guys are more of a managed service provider. So while they do a little bit of their own proprietary software, mostly what they do is sort of implementation, support, integration, for, um, for, for other software. And the main one they do is the Ellipse software from the Swedish uh, or the Swiss giant, sorry, ABB. Um, and that's mostly used by sort of um, heavy, heavy industry sort of um, in, um, industries, mining, utilities, infrastructure uh, would use this software. Um, do a little bit of stuff with SAP, IBM, Microsoft. So that would be, you know, um, like I said before, implementing, supporting that software. Um, so, so that's why you look at this business and the margins a little bit like an app and we discussed just then, it's not that pure enterprise software where you, you do see sort of 30, 40% uh, EBITDA margins. These guys are much closer to, I think, 16 um, as, that, as that service provider. Nonetheless, you are getting good growth from 21% organic growth. They've acquired a, a company in the US, um, which is, you know, they, they think there's some real potential over there given that um, the, the, the global market of the, the, the businesses that they can service um, are primarily headquartered over there in the US. Um, so it looks interesting to me. Look, I, I have to admit, it is one that I am familiar with. I, I only put it on my watch list and, and sort of uh, wanted to keep an eye on it a bit further and just see how it progresses over the next couple of reports. It is, it is a new listing. So I, I won't come on today and, and say it's a buy, but um, uh, it definitely it is an interesting one. And I think put on your watch list, Frank, um, you know, for, for potentially a small position in the future. Uh, if, if management can continue to execute, you see that organic growth tick up. And the big one to watch is if they can get that, even that proprietary software they do have, it is very small right now. If you see that start to grow within their revenue base that would obviously be higher margin and be something to keep an eye on but for now um, I, I just need to see a little bit more from it Nadine. 
All right, Frank, that's uh, Luke's view. What's your view, Julia? Is it too new? Is it too small? Does it interest you at all? I mean, those growth rates are very interesting if they can sustain it. It IPO'd at 20 cents and it's around about 60 cents at the moment. So it has been, a, you know, a pretty difficult time, I think, for an IPO to be hitting the markets, but it's done extremely well given that jump that we've seen in earnings. So I think it's all around that earnings growth at the moment. It does have some pretty big clients out there, whether it's, you know, the Australian government's Department of Defence, Linter Energy, um, even having a look at some of the miners like and steel companies like ArcelorMittal. Um, so look, they are a global business, so watch that exchange rate as well. Um, but having a, a look at this company, and I think it is looking quite interesting here, but you really want to see that earnings growth continuing for this company. Things they look at are things like data migration and companies outsourcing, um, looking after the platform. So it looks like that's a it's been a good area for them and they are growing um, some big clients on their books as well. So watching for those new contract wins to keep on driving that valuation up. All right, that's an interesting one then. Franks, thanks for bringing it to our attention and hopefully that of other viewers as well. Guys, you take a little bit of a break, have a sip of water, I'll sum up what we've learned so far. And in our Future Fund series, Julia brought us her holy trinity, a lesson in compounding, CSL, BHP, and Macquarie. While Luke is looking to keep his kids, get his kids and keep his kids interested so they can uh, take the reins themselves. And he reckons that Nintendo is one that, uh, that will do that and will stand the test of time. I didn't realize Nintendo was over a hundred years old. I only cottoned on around Super Mario Brothers, however many years ago that was, I'm not gonna say. Anyhow, let's get onto the list of companies that have been nominated by you. Silk, first on the list, and it's going in the Osbiz Fantasy portfolio. It's got Julia's magic combo. Luke says, watch the M&A and how that progresses as well. Second on the list was integrated research. So that is an avoid for Julia. She wants some clarity. Why are customers deferring or is it a matter that they're finding another solution? It's also a hold if you already own it for Luke. He says it looks cheap on pre-COVID earnings, but he needs to see evidence of a further turnaround before he'd be buying. Next on the list was CBA. Look, it's a sell for both of my expert guests. Historically, it's expensive in Luke's view. He would be more inclined if you're looking for exposure to the financials to look at Resimac. Julia would rather look at Bank of Queensland in the banking space. In fact, she'd sell CBA to buy Bank of Queensland. It's a play on the economy but it perhaps is as good as it gets for the likes of CBA. Appin was number four. It's a punt maybe for short-term investors in Julia's view, but she really questions if what we're seeing in that data AI uh, speech part of the market, whether it's an actual structural shift that is happening longer term, it's an avoid at this time. Look, it's a hold for Luke if you already own it, if you've ridden it down, it is cheap, but it is not high tech, never has been. So he really needs to see the guidance improving and the company saying that it, management essentially saying that it will do and fulfill its promises before he would ever look to get in. COS was the last of, COS was the last on the list, COSOL. It's an interesting company in Julia's view. She just wants to see if it can sustain that growth. It's on Luke's watch list as well. Says that it's interesting as well, but again, it comes down to whether the, the metrics that we're seeing right now can be sustained into the future. Perhaps there's no big rush. 
Well, I've mentioned the fantasy portfolio a number of times, and if you are new to the call, just in case, we've been tracking a portfolio since July 1st of last year, thanks to our partner, NAB Trade. So the rule is all the companies to get two thumbs up or a buy, but it has to be both guests and it has to be on the day. So it's not, I'd buy it if, or I'll buy it a year from now. It is the price that it is today that you'd be willing to buy to put in your portfolio. It goes into ours. Weekly, we are down by 1.7%. Sorry, point, let's say two tenths of a percent, shall we? On the month, we're down by 2.6% and year to date down uh, up, I should say, pretty close to 3%. But since the, the fund's inception, uh, that's July 1st, 2020, it's up around 39%. Lately, well, today we added Silk, of course. We've added Bega Cheese, Accent, Calyx, Cogsgate, and Tuas, T-U-A is the ticker code there. But we've removed Nick Scali. We've removed A2 Milk, New Hope, and Medical Developments. If you'd like to see that full list, and we do appreciate you checking in on it, osbiz.co forward slash portfolio. It's on the bottom of your screen there. Well, Julia Lee from Berman Invest, Luke Winchester from Merweather Capital. It's great to have you guys here with us. So let's get to it, shall we? Next on the list for Cassie, Julia, I'm going to start with you. HT&E, HT1 is the ticker code. So in the media space, is it in the right media for you? Um, I guess you're looking at really advertising here where you've got uh, radio, including Chris FM, uh, as well as outdoor advertising through Hong Kong Outdoor. And then you've got Luxury Escapes, which are looking to sell at the moment. Um, so look, I think this one looks good. We know that Australia's recovery, it's still yet to come in 2022. And that means ad spend should um, also be revitalized. In addition, radio is really changing quite a bit. Um, we've moved to digital radio, and that means people are listening through things like Siri and Alexa, um, through their uh, their phones as well. So that means the audience is getting bigger. So in terms of advertising, it's becoming a much more attractive place, I think, to be advertising. They've also got a small section in terms of podcasts. Um, so they're looking to make investments into uh, the podcasting platform as well. So look, I think advertising at the moment, um, while it's looking like it has recovered quite a bit, I think there's still more recovery to come in 2022. So a yes from me. Oh, it's a buy. There you go. On the advertising rebound, we're likely to see. Luke, what do you think about HT&E? I mean, I note that UBS has a buy. Credit Suisse has a buy on the company. First half revenue coming in line with um, UBS estimates at least, and saying that there's a skew to the second half because it's been making investments into digital and also um, because of higher marketing costs. So do you think that there's room to grow if you assume that uh, radio advertising continues to grow? I think so. And, and, and look, they're trying to make the pivot to digital. And um, look, we had um, Seven West Media come up the last time I was on and, and, and I was quite impressed at how they've managed to, to, to make that pivot. And, and HT1 looks like they're on a similar path. Um, look, I'll, I'll say buy as well. Um, I'll, I'll sort of caveat that a little bit is that um, this is a cyclical business and, and similar to, to other media companies, you, you, you're combining a cyclical business with a you know, uh, ch changing structural backdrop as you make that pivot from, from analog to digital and, and podcasting and um, you know, advertising now being able to, to, to be shifted to, to all sorts of different areas. So 
Um, it, it probably isn't one that you put in your bottom drawer and you hold forever, but, but at current prices, it does look really interesting. 420 mil market cap, but a big net cash balance of about 120 million. Um, and as Julie was alluding to, a lot of investments on the balance sheet. So the biggest one that I could see was a holding in a business called Soprano, which um, they were hoping would actually be bought by a, um, a Dutch company, I believe, but the takeover fell through. But Nonetheless, it would have valued um, HT1 stake at, at something like $140 million, um, mostly script. So it would have taken them a while to sort of realise that into cash. But, um, you know, it goes to show the latent value is in businesses like this if you do that sort of sum of the parts valuation. So, look, at my rough numbers, I sort of, if you take away the cash and, and you know, reasonable valuations around some of the investments, trading on sort of seven or eight times earnings, which is, is cheap, obviously, in this market, but just in general. Um, and I agree with Julia that I think there's more legs to the recovery in, in the advertising space, particularly second half always stronger with, with Christmas. Um, but also, as we come out of lockdown, particularly for, for radio, given that most people listen to radio in their cars, we come out of lockdown, hopefully people travel and, and you see the radio advertising in particular really recover on the back of that. So speculative one, but I, I would hesitate to say buy. And, and, and like I said, that caveat of don't put it in your bottom drawer forever. Um, but I, I like also, just final point, I'm, I like management being proactive to try and close that sort of um, undervaluation with the market by spinning off some of these assets. They've got an on-market buyback. So it shows that they, they also believe their stock's undervalued and doing and trying to do something about mm -hmm. that, which is good to see. Thanks. Now, I'm going to start with you, Luke, for Satire. Uh, CTT is the ticker code, Josh. So this is an e-commerce play. It's luxury goods, but it's luxury goods that are sort of, well, offcuts for lack of a better term. They buy them at a cheaper price resell so you're not buying direct from gucci you're buying gucci from a secondary supplier uh, it has gone gangbusters since listing although uh josh points out it's pulled back recently so julia what do you make it or i think i said i'd start with luke luke what do you think of the business uh are there any questions that you have about its business model and the sustainability of that because why would these luxury brands want to continue to see their goods going out from an e-commerce site um, good question, Nadine. And, and short answer is yes. I think there are question marks over the over the business model. But look, nonetheless, it's working currently. Um, how long that can continue to work for, I I probably don't understand the dynamics of the industry well enough to to comment too much. But you can certainly see why there'd be question marks in the future. But look, let's just go back for a second. This only floated in you know, late last year and it's quadrupled. Um, absolutely amazing performance. And and while that's not um, you know unheard of. For, for stocks before, um, it's the fundamental improvements in the business that, that really catch my eye. I mean, um, the, the the revenue has quadrupled along with the, the, the stock price. Um, you know, every operating metric that they, they call out has improved substantially, not just on last year, but even on the prospectus forecast that they put forward for FY21. Um, if you run any sort of the website metrics, like a similar web website traffic or an Alexa website rankings, um, traffic's doubled in the last six months and, and, you know, they've shot up the Alexa ranking. So, like I said before, clearly the business model as it stands today is working and, and there's no argue, argument about that, but you clearly see that in the share price. You alluded to it before, you know, is there question marks around the business model longer term? So um, these guys source their luxury goods from from wholesalers. And yeah. the question is, do, do the ultimate brand owners, um, you know, 
are they aware that the wholesalers are using a channel like Setai that discounts quite heavily? Now, bear in mind, you know, you hear stories about luxury retailers who would rather burn uh, merchandise or, or destroy merchandise than sell it as a discount because it tarnishes their brand. So that's that's the long-term questions that Setai has to answer is, as they engage with brands directly, and they've already called out they've started to engage with brands directly, um, will they be forced to sort of have that discount close as the brand sort of take uh, a bit more control over the pricing of their brands on the Setire website. Like I said, I probably just don't know enough about the the, the dynamics yeah. of the industry to say with any great certainty. Um, so I'd have to put a hold on the business. Like Josh, I, I know that's had a little bit of a pullback, but it was incredibly you know overvalued on the run that it had. So I don't think it's pulled back to any sort of region where you could argue that there's real value there. Um, but if you can sort of answer that that main question I've got about the longer term business model. The growth metrics they've got going, you can certainly sustain even the, the share price today, but I can't, so I, I would just have it as a hold. Julia, how about you? Uh, exponential growth, can it continue? Or is it just looking expensive considering its uh, lack of a long-term history? Look, I, I think Satya's found a, a bit of a little niche market. Um, and look, in the luxury goods area, traditionally, you know, the view was that people would want to see and touch the goods and that, uh, you know, an online portal wouldn't be as effective in terms of sales. Now, different luxury brands have different pricing policies around their, their products. Some uh, products, you know, it's cheaper to go to another country and, and buy the product simply because of, uh, of currency fluctuations. And other products, you know, they try to keep a consistent pricing even across different markets. Um, so, look, it depends on the product. And I can see the value of Setire where, you know, you can, um, I guess, look at that loophole where, you know, prices might be cheaper in another market. I mean, I'm sure you've seen um, tourists lining outside luxury stores in Australia when they come to visit because, you know, the pricing here is cheaper than in their home country. So they buy their, you know, luxury handbags over here rather than in their in their home country. And this is just taking it to a digital level. So look, I like the model. I understand that the main risk is perhaps litigation around um, the rights to distribute these products, given the luxury brands do place a high value on uh, selective distribution and being selectively available and also the pricing component of things. So that is a key risk to be aware of. But the growth metrics here are pretty phenomenal. So, you know, on a pullback to around about that $3 level, I'd say looks quite attractive. I think one of the main risks here is this is mainly a technology platform. So it is based around some of the sentiment towards that tech space. So if you continue to see the NASDAQ correcting, then you will see uh, the share price here also coming under pressure. But look, in terms of, of what its actual business model is, it's not only the platform, but it's the automation of that platform, which means that its business is scalable and the pricing policies that it has as well. So look, I think it looks attractive here. The key risk here is that they do see litigation from you know one or more of the luxury brands that they hold. Um, but look, I think they've found a niche market. The other thing to watch out for, you know, is that they are seeing extremely strong rates of growth. And when you see strong rates of growth like this, it's, you know, not that difficult to set up a, a similar type of business. So just watching competition, because it's nice when you've got a clear field in front of you and you're taking away market share. But once competition comes through, it's a little bit harder to do. Um, and we've seen that in the buy now, pay later space. So just watching that co competition aspect. But, you know, I like it. Yes, from me. Bits of buy from Julia. Good one. All right, let's move on. Uh, we've got next on the list, HRL 
Holdings. Luke, you're up first because it was specifically addressed to you. What's your opinion on this small cap? And tell us just briefly, because we've got a, a little bit of pressure on time now, what it does. Um, these guys do like laboratory services. Um, and and um, Ollie sent in the question asking for me. I must admit, Ollie, it's been a, a couple of years since I looked at HRL and I won't mince words. Um, the business hasn't really done much since the last time I looked at it a few years ago. Um, look, it, it looks okay in the sense of um, you, you're starting to see a bit of a recovery from the COVID, 12% revenue um, growth half on half. So perhaps that second half 21, you're starting to see that that sort of recovery out of a, a weaker COVID period. Um, but, but looking through the presentation, I did sort of remember a few of the reasons why I wasn't super enthused about the business. Um, they do carry a bit of debt. Now, look, it is offset by a healthy cash balance. But in general, I just don't like to see debt in micro caps. It's, it's very rarely at, at, at sort of um, uh, good interest rates to them. It's, it's usually quite expensive debt. Um, and these businesses and business models, I guess, can be so volatile in the micro cap space that debt can very quickly swing to being a problem for them. So that was a bit of an issue for me. Um, and the other one as well, it's, it's it's quite a low margin business, you know, sort of 14, 15% margins and, and quite competitive. You've got ALS in the same space, um, Cardno and and a few others as well. They, they highlight in their investor presentations. Mm-hmm. Um, not super expensive, about 16 times earnings. That's COVID affected earnings. Management looking to sort of take their revenue from 34 million to 45 to 50 over the next three years. But the thing is they've flagged some, some investments in FY22 to, to set the platform for that growth over the next uh, sort of FY23, FY24. So I still think you could see FY22 be a weaker year. Knowing micro caps, you very rarely see that recovery until it comes through in the numbers. So it wouldn't surprise me to see another year or so of just mm-hmm. maybe sideways to, um, you know, maybe a, a small, small uh, price higher, but uh, largely going nowhere for HRL. So if you're in there, Ollie, I would probably actually hold it. I, I wouldn't try to time it in the sense of sell it and come back, but um, I, I wouldn't buy it today. Julia, do you have anything to add on HRL Holdings? Do you know it? You can keep it brief if you like. Yeah, um, so they look at sampling and lab testing, um, and mainly in the areas of dairy as well as honey. So I guess they're, they're the big areas for them. The area of growth for them, I think, is in laboratory equipment, which they're trying to branch out and expand into. Um, at this point in time, probably be a hold for me. I prefer ALS. Um, we know that their food testing over in Europe has been doing well. So I think that ALS is in an upgrade cycle and has been for uh, over a year now. Um, but uh, this one, you know, it, there's not too much to excite me here. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm That's so okay excited to say. hold you. No need to, uh, no need to mince words. As uh, Luke says, all right, let's get to the next one on the list, which is United Overseas Australia, UOS. This one's for Tom. Julia, I'll start with you. Look, I'm only going by what I've read about it is that it's uh, main, mainly based in Malaysia. So it's a property development company, essentially, investments as well. Um, it, is there a need to be in a company that is domiciled here, but uh, invested mainly and operating mainly in Malaysia? Yeah, look, I really try to avoid companies that are domiciled here, but most of their business is in another country. And that's only because um, from an investment point of view, um, the amount of information is usually less that you get from a company that is operating over here in Australia. So this is in the property space and they look at buying um, property and then uh, developing it and selling it mainly in Malaysia. Um, And look, 
I, I don't really like that it's listed here in Australia rather than in, in, in Malaysia. It would be another story if they were doing property development mainly here in Australia. Also in terms of Asia, I just think you could get some spillover effects uh, given Evergrande, so just watching that as well. So mm -hmm. I really don't think now would be the time to be looking at this company, so a no from me. Yeah, that's a no, that's an avoid. How about you, Luke, uh, for UOS? Um, yeah, look, so it's, it's a Malaysian listed developer. So the Australian listing owns 71% of that business. So that, that's what you're buying here. Bear that in mind. Um, as far as a Malaysian property developer goes, it's, it's not mine. I'll, I'll say that up front. I, I, I wouldn't buy the stock. Um, but they look to be decent operators. You, you look at their, their sort of um, growth of the net book, um, net asset value, I guess, over time. It's, it's done quite well. Um, pay solid dividends every every half. Um, so, you know, uh, Tom, who, who asked the question, if you owned UOS, I, I looked at the last result. Uh, it appears to be obviously some COVID issues that most sort of property developers and REITs have suffered through. I didn't see anything there was a major thesis breaker, but it's just not for me. Like I, I wouldn't invest in a Malaysian property developer, but if, if I owned it, I didn't see anything that said I would sell it. So I guess it's a hold. Got it. Thank you, Luke. And uh, we'll get to the lucky last on the list. PPK, excuse me, PPK Group. Uh, look, over to you, Luke. What do you think of it? Um, not sure, Nadine. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very interesting business. Uh, so it, it, it rewind a few years ago. It used to be like a mining services equipment business. Um, and, and, you know, they sort of took the cash flow from that to make some small investments and have now actually spun that business away. So what you're left with is, left with, sorry, is essentially a technology incubator. Um, and most of that technology is um, centered around boron nitro nanotubes. I, I'll have to read that one to make sure I get it right. Mm. Um, and I did a little bit of reading into this. Like, it, it looks like the technology is legitimate. These these BNNTs, as they call them, um, can be used in, in a lot of different um, applications to make um, materials stronger um, and, and more lightweight. Uh, but the difficulty has been actually manufacturing these BNNTs, and that's where their technology has kicked in. They're doing something very interesting, and that is taking this core technology, and rather than just trying to monetize that and sell that to customers, they are, they've opened up about five or six joint ventures where they are minority shareholders in these joint ventures where they're using these boron nitride nanotubes in a variety of different places. So one of them they've actually managed to, to list on the ASX, L, um, LIS Energy, um, ticket yeah. code LIS is only That's just listed. That's just listed. Yeah, we spoke with them last week. It's up on the website yeah. if you're interested. So straight away, you know, you've shown a proven ability to, I guess, not monetize, but I, I don't think it's making money yet. But, you, you know, you've, you've brought value to your shareholders by bringing this, this listing to market. But I've got the list here, white graphene, strategic alloys, 3D dental, precious metals, ballistic glass, um, you know, fair play to management. I think the strategy they're using makes a lot of sense. You've got this, you know, highly speculative technology. Let's partner with a bunch of different people, see if we can find the use case for it. If we can, you know, we float that business with our minority holding and, and obviously make money for shareholders. What got me was the valuation. It's well over a billion dollars. Um, and, and you've seen a lot of heat come out of the price, I think, since that LIS um, energy has come out. I, I just don't know enough about the technology, Isaac, to say whether it's a, a buy or not. I guess if you held it, you, you would hopefully have a better idea and, and would continue to hold. But for me, I couldn't say buy, Nadine. Could not say buy. How about you, Julia? I mean, every once in a while, taking a bit of a risk with a new and innovative company is worth it, is it not? 
Yeah, I'd keep this one on my watch list. I mean, if you have a look at boron nitride nanotubes, they're very similar to carbon nanotubes, but better. So if you have a look at the actual material, it's very flexible. It's 100 times stronger than steel, but it's lighter than carbon fiber. So obviously there would be a lot of uses. The problem is in actually manufacturing it, it's extremely expensive. You have to do it at huge heats, which is why they have these massive furnaces. I think in producing one kilogram, it costs about $900,000. So that's the issue at the moment. If they can bring their, that cost down and they are trialing, I think, uh, sites to make commercial uh, commercial quantities, that would be a huge breakthrough. You can imagine the type of applications it would have in terms of aerospace. They've already looked at, you know, use of it uh, in tiny amounts in lithium sulfur batteries, which is what they've listed, but they're also having a look at things like antiviral face masks. Um, there's a number of different opportunities. It is an incubator. Their partnership with Deakin University is the main way a lot of mm -hmm. these opportunities do come about. Um, and look, the intellect property component is there with uh, Deakin University where they are working on that manufacturing process. So if they are able to produce commercial quantities at a lower cost, I think that would be a, a breakthrough. It is early stage, it's loss making at the moment, probably worth putting a little bit of money in the back drawer to see whether they can come up with the goods. Um, but if they can, you know, a material that's 100 times stronger than steel, it's a question of cost at the moment and getting that cost down. Got it. Thank you, guys. That brings us to the end of our list of the companies that have been nominated by our viewers. It was a pleasure to spend an hour with you both. Plenty of information there. Julia Lee from Berman Invest, Luke Winchester from Meriwether Capital. Thanks, guys. Enjoy the rest of your afternoon. Thanks, Nadine. Thanks, Thanks Luke. See you soon. In person, hopefully. Now we're making some progress in terms of vaccination rates. Let's uh, sum things up for the second half of the show. So HT&E uh, is a buy from both of my guests. It's going into the Osbiz portfolio. Caveat though from Luke saying this is not necessarily a very long-term buy as they're very cyclical businesses. So just keep that in mind, but he likes that the management's been quite proactive. Let's move on to Satire. It's a buy from Julia, not so from Luke. It's a hold for him. HRC Holdings is a, um, it's a hold for Luke. HRL Holdings, apologies, can't read my writing. He expects that it will likely trade sideways for the next little while. Um, so if you've got that in mind, why not wait? Not much has changed since the last time he really looked at this company. Julia prefers ALS in this space, which has demonstrated that it can do the job and is getting those contracts. The next on the list was UOA. UOS is the ticker code, United Overseas Australia. Uh, Julia and Luke just don't really think that they'd be interested in investing in a company that is developing in Malaysia. Although Luke does point out if you're in it, hold it, and he points to the dividends and they seem to be pretty decent operators. Last on the list is PPK Group. It's on Julia's watch list, an interesting company, good technology, uh, could continue. So watch its progress. Um, it's pretty specky for Luke and um, he says, look at that $1 billion valuation. Um, but again, the technology behind it could be interesting and could prove to be so in the future. So just watch that one. That is the show for today. I mentioned it before, but if you have a company that you'd like us to discuss, email us at the call, osbiz.com.au, or you can tweet us at osbiz.tv. You can check out that portfolio, osbiz.co forward slash 
portfolio. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.